0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke, chapter 24. Well, this is the very final uh, words of Luke in his gospel. Remember, Luke-Acts really is, is kind of like one book because Luke is the author of Acts, and Luke continues on with his story uh, and his narrative about Jesus Christ. And and now in Acts, he's dealing with what um, uh, goes into the history of the early church and all that goes on there as well. So today we'll be in Luke chapter 24. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of God? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us today. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to your word so that they wouldn't be just words on the page, but they would come and dwell richly within us, that they would pour from everything that we say and everything that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke 24, verses 36 to the end of the chapter. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them, And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now it seems that every year there is some uh, journalist, some expert who, and it always coincides with Easter, Uh, comes along right about this time of year and says they've discovered uh, the bones of Jesus, or they've discovered the tomb of Jesus, Um, and, and this year was no exception. It was Dr. Ariah Shimron, who's a geologist in Jerusalem. And he carried out some, this was not a new finding, it was kind of a rehash of previous findings, but he carried out some new tests that he was convinced that more than ever this showed that the Talput tomb, was a a burial site in in East Jerusalem, that this was the place where Jesus and his wife Mary and their son Judah were all buried, okay? Uh, Now, if you remember, uh, it was back 2007. The the, the tomb and and the Osiris were were discovered back in 1980, but back in 2007, there was a documentary on this, and James Cameron uh, from... uh, Titanic thank you uh, Titanic theme Titanic fame did this documentary on these osuaries. They these were the boxes that held the bones of Jesus okay now um, uh, liberal scholars suggest that the discovery of Jesus's bones really doesn't doesn't do anything for Christianity it doesn't bother us at all I mean to find Jesus this is a quote to find Jesus's bones is no problem because the spirit of Jesus is still alive this gives me a warm fuzzy Okay. Well, I I want to tell you that I've done extensive work and I have found the body of Jesus. Okay. And you know where it is? It's seated on the right hand of the father in power and glory. You can say amen. Okay. That's where the body of Jesus is. Okay. And guess what's going to happen to it? It's going to come back. Okay. He is going to come back with all authority and all power in righteousness. And he is coming back not to save, but to judge. The first time he was here to save, Now, next time he comes to judge. Now, denying the resurrection of Jesus has always been just a major pastime of, of Satan and all of his, uh, those in league with him, his agents, because if, if we can get to the point, if they can prove the point that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then his word cannot be believed because he said that after three days he would come out of the grave. And if Jesus is not to be believed, then the Bible is not to be believed because the Bible talks about the resurrection, okay? And if the Bible is not to be believed, then neither can we believe the words of the apostles because they were witnesses to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And if we can't believe that, then gosh, we can't believe the Old Testament because Jesus came to do what? Fulfill that which was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so, we can discount pretty much everything if we just get rid of that pesky resurrection story. Man. Well, those who hate and attempt to discredit the resurrection understand the importance of it, the centrality of the resurrection to Christianity and to our faith. But if the resurrection is true, and I say if not as if really questioning it, okay, then Christianity is true. And if Christianity is true, then the Old Testament prophecies are true. Then the words of Jesus are true. Then the eyewitness reports of the risen Christ are true. Then salvation is real, and God is God, and those doubters are in big trouble. Big trouble. That's why when it happened, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the chief priests, who believed that Jesus just might come out of the tomb, okay, Now, now it's strange to think that these people made protections or kind of hedged their bet so that there wouldn't be any evidence of a resurrection. Remember, they got the soldiers and they said, okay, well, now we'll cover you uh, with your own army and and just say that uh, they came and stole the body or whatever it was. They were afraid of the resurrection. In fact, they bribed the soldiers, so said, We'll protect you. And that story kind of circulated within the groups in the first century. Now, let's look at the context of our passage this morning, what has uh, summarized what has just happened here, so we know where we are. Jesus was, had joined the two disciples on their walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they didn't realize who he was at first, remember. They were pouring out their hearts and, and, and how they had all these hopes for Jesus and we had, had devoted our life to this guy and now he has, has died and, and you know he was our, the hope for the redeeming of Israel um, and, and, and he'd been crucified. He'd been delivered up to the chief priests or by the chief priest and scribes and the people and and this was at a time when Jesus had not yet revealed himself to these two. Okay, they're walking down almost down the road, almost with, with blinders on about who this guy is with him. And then Jesus does not reason with them from human reasoning. He takes them to the scriptures and he goes back through the Old Testament and he lays out all these things about Jesus Christ. He taught them about the that the Messiah, the, the humiliation and the exaltation that the Messiah must face. And then he broke bread, and in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. And they said, that's Jesus, and he was gone. And we're told by Luke that they immediately made their way back to Jerusalem, just to find the others all in a room together, and they run in to tell them about what had just happened. Now look at verse 36 here. And while they were telling these things, end of 35, And they began to relate their experiences on the road, how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Now, in our humanness, we might wonder what in the world would Jesus say to the guys who had been with him all these years, had had followed him, had done everything that he said, and then when it came down and times got tough, they kind of ran away. What would Jesus say to them? Would he say, you of little faith, you foolish people, couldn't you, couldn't you do this? Couldn't you stay with it? He doesn't say any of that. What does he say to them? Well, uh, unfortunately, Luke doesn't say. <laughs> <laughs> but the other Gospels writers say it. Peace. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. These were his words to them. Now they've denied him, they've abandoned him, but this is the kind of Savior that we have. How many of us have failed our Savior at some point in time? How many of us had the opportunity to do what Scripture said and we failed it? Or maybe we just ran away from that. We knew that the hard decision was coming, and it was laying there in front of us. We could see it down the road, and we just took this road instead because we didn't want to do the hard thing. How many of us have said, you know, Lord, I I just, I knew that person next to me. Just, they had opened the door, and they, they were just ready for the gospel, but I was just too chicken to go through. Too chicken to walk through that door and tell them about the things of Christ. How many of us have failed our Savior at some point like that? But yet, even to these who had abandoned him, who had run away, he says, peace. That's the kind of Savior that we have. He's a forgiving Savior. He knows everything about your heart. Now, just think about that. He knows everything about your heart. There's nothing that can be hidden from the Lord. Now, you may have really good friends. You may have a spouse that you talk to and everything that they don't know what's in your heart. Jesus does. He knows what is there. He knows the darkness of your heart. He knows those dark sides that, that we all try to hide away. He knows the times where we have been just, just so angry, but maybe nobody else knows it, but it's in our hearts, and it's so angry, and it's just unresolved, and we can't get over it. He knows those things within us. And what does he say to us? He says, come to me. All you who are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I can forgive your sins Come to me and you will find grace and mercy. Come, and he says, peace to you. There's no one in the world who has ever wanted to be pardoned more than he is ready to pardon. Now think about that for a moment. There's no one in the world who has ever wanted to be pardoned for their sins more than he is ready to pardon you for your sins. That's the Savior that we serve and we see this on full display when he comes into the disciples. I mean, where is the sinner who doesn't need this? Where is the believer who isn't challenged here to say, this is the way that I need to treat others. This is the way that I need to demonstrate the things of Christ to those around me. Are we this forgiving? No, frankly. I'm not, I don't know about you. That's hard to do to be to be abandoned, to be betrayed and to come and forgive. But it's, it's, Christ didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. When did he die for us? While we were still sinners. Gosh. While well, we were still sinners. There you are on the side of the road. You've had a car accident. You're all bloody, and you're busted up, and you're sitting on the road, and the ambulance shows up, and what do you do? I, well, let me get cleaned up. I don't want to go to the hospital all messy. Okay? No, that's not the way it works. He takes us because we're broken. He takes us because we're sinners. We can't make ourselves clean enough to be in the presence of the Lord. The appearance of Jesus was just such fabulous news. But you can imagine the kind of shock that went on. Here it is in a room. The door is closed. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there. Now, how did he get there? What did they say? But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. It was just too good to be true. okay? Like the guy, like Uncle Frank who comes to you and, and plays the prank. You think he's the uh, uh, publisher's clearinghouse. Or maybe every once in a while on, on some of those video shows, you see a family who, who you know, somebody plays the lottery all the time. And, you know, the ticket won yesterday, but they don't give it to them until today, and today's number is different. So the person opens up the ticket, and they read off the number, and they think that they've won. And, and their first response is, no, I can't win this. This is, this is what? Too good to be true. Well, it's not true, and that's part of the fun of taping the reaction, okay? But sometimes we think it is just simply too good to be true. And maybe that's a protection for us, that we we are are hesitant to receive really fabulous good news because it just might not be as good as it seems. So here they are, they're huddled together in a room in Jerusalem. They've heard the testimony of the women that the angel explained to them that he had risen. They don't believe it. They think it's nonsense. And that's important because remember the chief priests and the scribes went to great length to discount the resurrection because they were. They were afraid it was true, but the apostles, what? They had no expectation of a resurrection at all. Here is Jesus in their midst, and they're going, who's this? What's going on here? How did you get here? This is the resurrected Lord, and they still don't believe that he is there. They thought it was nonsense, okay? Let's look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit, okay? So instead of being, what's Jesus' response here? He says, peace to them, and then instead of being harsh with them, like, I told you this was going to happen, okay? He he never says, I told you so. Can we all say that? No. I "I told you, I told you. But instead of being impatient, instead of being angry with them, he begins to teach them in a way that they could grasp it. Okay, Charles Spurgeon says this. We should observe for another thing in this passage that our Lord's marvelous cond, condescension to the infirmity of his disciples. Remember, Spurgeon's writing in the late 1800s. Condescension to the infirmities of the disciples. He spoke at their level, okay? He didn't suddenly, you know, accuse them of anything. He taught them at a way, at a level, and in a way that they could understand. We read that when his disciples were terrified at his appearance and could not believe that he, it was he himself, he said, Behold my hands and my feet. Touch me. He says, Go ahead. Okay, you want, want some proof? Go ahead and touch me. Our Lord might fairly have commanded his disciples to believe that he has risen. He may have said, Don't you know I'm standing right in front of you? Can't you believe this? He says, No, here's some tangible proof. He might have justly said, where is your faith? Why do you not believe my resurrection? Don't you see it with your own eyes? But he does not do so. He stoops even lower than this. He appeals to the bodily senses of the eleven. Go ahead and touch me. Go ahead. He says, he bids them touch him with their own hands. Satisfy themselves that he is a material being and not a ghost, not a spirit, which they first thought. I can understand why they're troubled. I mean, you're in a room, it's locked, all of a sudden Jesus, somebody's there, you thought this guy was dead, and now he's there, and Jesus calms their hearts. He brings them peace. He brings them the ministry of mercy and of grace. Now, they're doubting here. They, they they can't believe it, and the Greek word for doubt here is is—is an inward reasoning and disputing, and this is... Literally, I can't believe my eyes. I see it right in front of me, but the intellectual portion of my brain says, this is impossible. I see it, but I can't believe it. That's what they were facing. So let's look at, at verse 41. This is, There's no other way to say this except in, in how they've done it in verse 41. And while they still could not believe it for joy... I looked at five or six scholarly places this week for a better translation of that, and there's just not. They could not believe it for joy. When was the last time you could not believe something for joy? I didn't even know what that meant. Okay, could not believe it for joy. It just doesn't sound like a way that we talk today. So I, I, I tried to make sense of it. Their hearts are beginning... To believe. But they don't want to go because that joy would be so fabulous, they don't want to be disappointed with it. They're beginning to believe that the lottery ticket is real, okay? And that they're going to be millionaires. That they're they're beginning to believe that this could possibly be Jesus. But if they go there and it turns out to be fake, their hearts, their their joy is going to be crushed. But the thought that this could be Jesus in the flesh, right in front of them, is just too great to imagine. Now remember that a matter of hours ago, their hearts were crushed. They're pierced. I mean, they're just, all their lives have just been tossed away with the death of Jesus. Now he's standing in front of them. One moment, they're at the depths. The next moment, they're possibly at the heights. But they're afraid to go there. They're afraid to go there. And Jesus kind of senses this. So he says, What? They must have been southern Jews. Do you have anything to eat? Okay. <laughs> well, of course they did. It's some broad fish. So he takes it and he eats it. And he says, You ever seen a, a spirit eat? You ever seen a ghost eat? He said, No. No. And then what does Jesus do? He opens their minds to the things of scripture he has shown them and offered them some physical and sensory proof he has demonstrated his reality by eating and then he goes to the scriptures and says look the lord teaches them in a way that they are able to bear in a way that they are able to bear um a simple thing. We don't teach calculus to third graders. Why? They're just not ready for it. They can't. They don't teach calculus to me because I, I don't know anything about it. I'm not ready for it. But you, you don't teach those things to children. But you teach them in a way that they are able to bear. So Jesus comes to them and realizes their doubts, realizes their fears, and he teaches them from the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament in a way that they can understand. Spurgeon, again, says, we must not cast off men because they do not see everything at once. Don't you get it? Well, you know, okay, I've been a believer since I was 15 and uh, worked in, in, in ministry for a lot of years, okay? Read books, all that stuff. And I can come off and, and, and tell you stuff and then you can sit there and go, what? I guess, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Well, of course you don't understand. Okay? You cannot pour information and the deep things of, of Scripture into people who aren't ready for it. We have to have what first? Milk. You have to have milk before you can get to the solid food. Once you get to some solid food, then you're ready for meat. How long does it take to go from milk to meat? Depends on how diligent you want to be. Okay? So he gives them the things that they can understand. We must not, Spurgeon again, we must not despise the humblest and most childish means. If we can only persuade men to believe. Now, we haven't done a kid sermon in a long time, mostly because it's a time constraint thing. But often, and I, I won't use any names, but people would come and say, I got more out of your kid sermon." Than 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 a regular sermon. Why? Because well, it, it, we make it simple. We have a, a an object. It's usually an object lesson, and and sometimes that's what we need to understand certain concepts. Okay, we need to make them simple. I, I walked into a class at, at seminary, and the professor said, "Here is your assignment for tomorrow. I want you to do a children's sermon on election." What? <laughs> gosh (laughs) not 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 many of us did very well and and then when we shared all this the next day we said "Uh, Dr. Partee have you ever done a kid's sermon on election he says no I was hoping to get ideas from you okay okay (laughs) Okay. but but you have to teach where people can understand And, and Spurgeon is like you know don't be upset you've got somebody who's who's only been a believer for three or four years and you've been a believer for 20 years don't expect them to magically jump to your level of understanding teach them in the things that they need help them grow okay don't jump to the answer because it took you 20 years of wrestling to get to the answer don't naturally assume that they're going to be comfortable with the answer they need the years to wrestle with the things of Christ as well Oh, that's what Spurgeon says here. And, and remember what Paul says. He says, I come all things to all men. For what purpose? That I might win a few. If I have to become weak to the weak, I will. If I have to teach like a child for the children, I will. Now Jesus goes on to say, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, the women get to the tomb. He spoke, the angel spoke to the women and said, remember his words. You remember when he's walking along with the disciples and he taught them from the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now, maybe Luke, this is the third time Luke mentions this. Maybe he wants us to understand something very, very important. The Old Testament scriptures lay out for us the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm he. I'm the one that the Old Testament has said. And suddenly Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures. These are the words that I told you before I was crucified, before I was dead, before I was buried, before I was raised. These are the things that I taught you. Do you understand them now? How many of us have looked in the Word and read something and said, oh, great, and we go on? And then a little bit later, we come and we read the same thing. We go, oh, that's fine. And then there's a Sunday school lesson on it. And, and maybe for years, we have gone over this verse. And then one day, we read that verse, and we go, what? Where'd this come from? I, I mean, uh, uh, this is fabulous. Where, where was this? How did I miss this? You, you didn't miss it. You didn't need it then, so, so to speak. But it was at that moment that for whatever reason, the Lord opened your eyes to that passage and provided you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of it. Remember, before we, we read the word on Sunday morning, we ask for what? That the Holy Spirit would open our eyes. There's reading it with human eyes, and then there is the understanding that comes only from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is opening their eyes here to what he's already taught them. I've told you this, I've taught you this several times, now their eyes are open to it. Jesus takes them right back to the word of God. Right back and says it's in the law of Moses, it's in the prophets, it's in the Psalms. All these things must be fulfilled. And what what is it? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, which he did, should rise. There he is in the locked room with them. He'd just eaten some fish from the dead on the third day. And the only thing missing in this trio is what they have to do that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we know what Luke is referring to. It comes just in a few chapters into Acts Acts chapter 2, okay, the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says... I've done the first two. Now it is your job. This is kind of Luke's version of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Go into all the world, what? Preaching, teaching, preaching, baptizing, making disciples. Go and make disciples. He says, go and proclaim the things of what? The risen Lord, of his mercies, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Proclaim his name. Where? Everywhere. Until all hear the gospel of Christ. You start in Jerusalem, and you go out from there. So you're witnesses to these things. You were my witnesses. You go, oh, man, he's talking about changing the world. Really? How am I going to change the world? Because you can do that because what? I'm sending you the promise of my Father. The promise of my Father. That's the Holy Spirit. You know Jesus said, I've got to go. If I don't go, the Spirit's not going to come. When he goes, the Holy Spirit comes and and he descends in power. And this group of fishermen and uh, a couple of uh, other guys, they go out and they change the world because the promise of the Father was upon them. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3 for just a moment. The promise of the Father is not... A new concept here. This is something that has been around quite a while. Galatians chapter three, verse thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Remember Genesis 12. He was blessed to be a blessing. He was going to be a blessing to the entire world. Okay. So the Lord came and Abraham was first. He He'd called him out of paganism. Um, Abraham certainly wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes, but he grew in his understanding of what the Lord had laid upon him to do. The Lord blessed him in fabulous ways, but that blessing is ours in faith. So in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, this is one of those things that has been around and it is promised. It is the promise of our Heavenly Father that the Holy Spirit would come and descend upon each individual believer. So when you believe, at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. You are filled with the Spirit. You are given the ability to understand the Word, to do the work that He calls you to do. In the Holy Spirit we enjoy all the blessings of our union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit can only be found when we are united with Christ. Now every religion, every other religion invented by man teaches that the way of salvation depends upon me, depends upon my work, depends upon my efforts. Remember uh, last week we said oh you get your best suit on then you go around and you roll around in the mud and get blood on it and get it all filthy and go down to cotton row and say hi i'm here for dinner and they go what you can't get in here and you say i've got a reservation and they say, no you're not coming in here dressed like that it's the same type of thing you you in a sense you get to the gates of heaven and the lord says you can't come in dressed in your own works they're no good here When you get there, you're going to be dressed in the works of Christ, not of your own works. But every place else says you have to do this. There are five things you have to do. There are eight things that you have to do. Uh, You have to go and visit, you know, so many houses uh, every week and and try to evangelize. The Lord says Christ has done the work for us. And he did it while we were still in our sin. At just the right time, Christ died for us. The thief on the cross what did he do to get to heaven he believed he called upon the name of the lord jesus christ and this runs counter to so much of our thinking that we have to do something i have to achieve something you know i can't be how can grace be what free because it's grace christ forgives christ humbles himself and teaches in a way that man can understand Christ calls us to go out and to do the work, to take the gospel into the world. And the Father enables us to do it because of the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. If the Lord calls you to do it, there's nothing that can stop you. Because he has called you, he has empowered you. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is what we're called to do now. To proclaim the things of Christ. He died like he said he would. He was in the grave for three days like he said he would be. He rose in the same body that went into the tomb. The tomb was empty. The body came out. He demonstrated that to many and now he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to do the things that he calls us to do that the world might know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Lord, we're not all... um, gifted to go off into, into lands where the, um, uh, the gospel is hardly ever heard. We support many who go to the Muslim world and risk their lives to present the gospel there. Some of us, Lord, are called to do other things with our life, but the call to evangelize and to share the gospel never goes away. It might be our neighbor. It might be the guy in the restaurant. might be the waiter who comes and waits on us who looks like the weight of the world is on their shoulders. It might be a word of encouragement uh, that to, to helps, helps to lead them to the things of Christ. We might be planters. We might be fertilizers. We might be waterers. Or we might be harvesters of the things of Christ. Lord, let us not be ashamed of this gospel. Let us not fear to talk about it, to share it, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.